Welcome to Room for Growth. A Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. All right. Welcome to Room for Growth, Billy. I am in Charlottesville, Virginia today with you live and in person. This is super weird, but it's good to be here. It's good to have you here. I think it's great to be doing this in person from the same desk. I kind of miss looking up and seeing you in your own less beautiful, but still lovely studio. (laughs) Exactly. Well, today we're interviewing Michael Katz, who is the CEO of Imparticle, one of the top CDP platforms, somebody that we've been able to work with. Yeah, I personally love Mparticle. I recommend them more frequently because I think they do a few things in market that are really unique and give them a huge competitive advantage. First and foremost, they are kind of an all-in provider. They are one of the truest forms of a customer data platform that exists in market today. So what their platform is really excellent at is ingesting different sources of data, cleansing it, organizing it into individual profiles. So you might think anything that somebody does on a social media platform when they're interacting with your brand, anything that they do when they're clicking through on your emails or push notifications, anything they purchase, anything they browse anything that's been transacted to them or sent to them logistically, you can take all that information, you can combine it, store it in a customer profile and a customer data platform. And then you can use that same data, you can manipulate it, you can translate it, you can come up with custom attributes for it, you can do things like turn an NPS score into some kind of indicator for audience segmentation. And you can redeploy out to different audiences across different channels as well. So it becomes sort of the source of truth for all customer data. Mparticle is great at this. Like I said, they're one of the truest platforms in this space. CDPs do different things. Some have AI built on top of them, which is something that I'm pretty adamantly against. I don't think machine learning and artificial intelligence belongs in the brain of your data necessarily. But what Mparticle also does well is they have a pretty incredible service model. So there's lots of different types of technology that you can buy. Some technology and software providers make sure that they help you adopt their platform. And others basically just sell a license and say kind of good luck with this piece of tech. And depending on the organization, that that service model to help you adopt that technology is really important. And that's also something that Mparticle really thrives at is they are really close with their clients. So they often bring a nice strategic point of view. Yeah. And we've got some hard questions for Michael. So uh, in the CDP space, there's pressure on ROI. We're seeing that with uh, a lot of the conversations we're having. There's Folks out there saying CDPs are dead, uh, you don't need one. So we've got some hard-hitting questions for Michael that we're going to hit him with, and I'm looking forward to just kind of seeing where we land. Yeah, definitely. I think customer data platforms are one of the more like controversial areas of tech, where some people say critical will be with a tech stack forever. Others say, ah, over the next five years, we're going to see this transform into yeah. databases or other things. So it'll be a really interesting conversation. What I will say is that at this time of year, it is the holidays. Oh we gosh. are deep into Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday. I don't know about you, but my inbox, yeah, I love it. Don't crazy. get me wrong. I love it. I just open email for fun, but it's so flooded. It's outrageous, man. It's yeah. like all the aunts and uncles coming to town. All these brands are like, hello, remember yeah. us? You signed up once. And I don't know how I feel about that. I Like you said, you love it. I, I There's times when I'm like, okay, I've not purchased anything from this brand. 
have no interest and and now all of a sudden you have some like random offer it's just kind of weird but what i do like there's been a few where a gift i bought my mother-in-law it's like an olive oil company that i cannot remember the name of at the moment but they reached out and basically the email context was very much focused on hey remember that gift you bought last year yes would you like to do that again essentially and i was like okay that's that's a good reminder because i probably would have forgotten about the olive oil gift i think it is like the great point i love it just because i love email push notifications. So I love to check out the content and the functionality. But you're totally right. It's a hard balance between please don't just spam people to spam people. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's lots of people who are giving money this time of year who wouldn't normally give money because they're looking for a tax break. There's people looking for gifts who might be shopping really differently. So it is one of those things where often with clients, we have to advise like, this is really not best practice. But Thanksgiving to Christmas, the rules are completely different in the world of own channel and paid media. It's go time. And so yeah, it's go time because you are doing acquisition at the same time that you are doing stewardship. But I think it's just remembering that balance, like don't hurt your best people. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, as we uh, plan for personalization and we're seeing emails in our inbox like crazy, we're going to move on to our interview with Michael Katz and deep dive into CDPs a little bit. Michael, thank you for being here today. We are so excited. Our interview today is with Michael Katz, who is the co-founder and CEO of Emparticle. Michael, welcome to the show. You are obviously a wildly successful businessman, but we would love if you would start by introducing yourself a little bit as a person beyond this empire you've created in customer data platforms. (laughs) Where did you grow up? What got you to where you are today? How did you end up in the customer data platform space? Ah, we're going back. Um, <laughs> Let's go all the way back. Way back. Um, well, first off, thank you for having me. It's great to great to see you both. I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and most people from the Northeast, when you say Worcester, the first thing they say is Worcester. <laughs> yeah, kind of humble beginnings, and uh, went to school upstate in New York. Uh, went to Syracuse University. Graduated with a couple of degrees, one in economics, one in finance, had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, but I figured like finance is where people made money. So I figured I would go that route. That ended up not necessarily playing out the way that I thought it would play out. Um, Ended up in the world of high tech. The first job I had out of college was at one of the early internet consultancies, a company called Zephyr. And it was there that I learned the importance of building company culture and using that as an asset for growth and success. But the other thing I realized along the way was like how not to scale. Because Zephyr, they raised $100 million back in like 2000, which was like, I think, one of the largest uh, VC investments in like a quote unquote internet company at the time. And they blew through it in like... 18 months. And so that was like really kind of jarring as a young professional right out of college. Like, oh, yeah, okay. I guess like you still do have to build a business and there's no shortcuts to success. And so I've really carried both those lessons with me across the, the two companies that I've created. So I spent a little bit of time after Zephyr at Accenture. I was like, you know, let me let me go work for like a bigger company. Let me go see and understand what good looks like. I knew I was going to start something. I just didn't know like what or when or where, why or how, Um, but had the entrepreneurial itch from a young age and 
an opportunity presented itself and started my first company, which was uh, in the ad tech space, a company called InterClick. And what made us unique and differentiated and allowed us to out-execute the competition, despite the fact that we were a late entrant into a crowded space that was undercapitalized, was the data platform that we built. What it allowed us to do was ingest first and third-party data from variety of sources in an easy, flexible way, get that data into a common taxonomy. And um, a lot of the magic that was that was created was in helping our customers operationalize the data much faster than the next closest alternative, because there is a time value to data. And so we rolled out a platform, which was called Open Segment Manager. And it was pretty transformative in terms of uh, the trajectory on the business. And so we ended up 7Xing revenue over like a two-year span without hiring more salespeople. And it's like, this is pretty cool. Along the way, we went public. Yahoo ended up buying us. The reason they bought us, the deal thesis at the time was like, hey, you guys have built this great brain and you've built a you know, in- incredible business our targeting products and personalization products have become like somewhat antiquated. Is there like a one plus one equals three scenario here? And we felt like the combination of their first party data assets, their first party ad inventory, and our ability to find signal in large data sets was kind of like a match made in heaven. It ended up kind of being a match made in hell because it was the year where there were like five CEO changes. Yeah. You know, needless to say, like the promise, the opportunity, the reason we got excited about doing the deal just never really came to fruition because of all the thrash at the executive level and ended up leaving a year later. And along the way, started to see a fundamental platform shift and... That was like the genesis of M-Particle. And we got the band back together in 2013 and have been doing it ever since. So hopefully that all kind of ties it together nicely. Yeah, (laughs) amazing story. We're going to get into M-Particle and and kind of dig into the weeds of the CDP landscape and get your thoughts there. Before we go there, though, you know, it's awesome that you've been able to start two companies and build them to success. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to our podcast. We get excited to talk to entrepreneurs at a basic level. Any advice, you know, when you're starting a new venture or somebody that's thinking about starting a new venture, are there, is there a core piece of advice that sticks out or a set of things that you would say to somebody that's thinking about jumping in and and taking the leap of starting a venture? Yeah, this is always such a tough question, right? I think people need to chart their own course. Like, don't try to be like me. Don't try to be like any other entrepreneur. Like, don't try to be the next Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. Like, just do you and be comfortable in that. And I would say, like, that that's probably the foundation for the advice that I would give. Now, on top of that, though, I would say, like, for me, like, the most growth and the most progress I've made are times when like I've, I've really invested into expanding my intellectual or knowledge horizon, right? So consuming a bunch of content. Like I don't, I don't think I started reading a lot, like a lot, a lot until probably just before COVID. And then like COVID obviously like gave me the space to be able to probably read like a book a week 
effectively. And I think that that becomes really important because if you subscribe to the thing where it's like you are the product of like the five people you spend the most amount of time with, like what ends up happening is like you get caught in that echo chamber, right? And so when you consume a bunch of content, especially like reading a bunch of books, it allows you to learn new frameworks, new perspectives, and it, and it allows you to effectively to kind of break free of that echo chamber a bit. But then also I would say reinforcing that with like having an executive coach. Now I, I wouldn't recommend like an exec coach to like early stage founders, but like, like the CEO entrepreneur journey is, is lonely and there's ups and downs and you can't let the, the ups get too up and you can't let the downs get, get too down and having somebody to talk to on a consistent basis. I feel like always puts me at, at ease. Yeah. So Michael, you're also super humble because one of the things that you didn't say about interclick is that when it sold to Yahoo in 2011, it sold for $270 million. And at one point during your time in interclick, you were the youngest CEO on NASDAQ. So I'm curious if as a leader, have you ever felt imposter syndrome? How did you overcome it? And how do you think your leadership style has progressed? Yeah. Well, I do pride myself on being by far and away the most humble person anybody's ever met. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of irony. You know, it's tricky. It's definitely tricky. I think we all wrestle with imposter syndrome to some extent, right? And to me, part of that is like, is there like a dissonance or a delta between kind of like what you're projecting and kind of like how you're feeling internally? And as entrepreneurs, like we have to deal with the burden of having more information than really anybody else in the organization, right? So we see, we kind of hear all the problems, not just like the problems in one jurisdiction. And then obviously like dealing with with the uncertainty. And that can be overwhelming at certain points in time, but you can't show that it's like affecting you. You actually have to put on a strong face and you have to remain kind of like even keeled and pretty level-headed, even though like inside your head, you're like, oh my God, this is crazy. I'm kind of up and down the roller coaster. Eventually though, I, I would say that, and I do credit working with my executive coach, a guy named Jerry Colonna, you realize that like over time, it's not about getting better at riding the roller coaster. It's kind of just like getting off the roller coaster and, and enjoying it from like a little bit of a distance. And, you know, I had a post the other day on LinkedIn and it was like, what if you just told yourself that everything was going to work out? Does anything change other than like the internal dialogue? Which I think can have like a profound net positive overall impact regardless. But I think it's like a good reminder that like you don't have to always stress. And if you're really good at what you do and you've put in the work, you'll meet whatever challenge faces you, right? Yeah, I think that's like a super good point. I don't know. I think about this a lot because I think fake it to you make it takes you pretty far. Just having that confidence to be like, I trust myself. I'll bet on myself. I know my work ethic. I know that I'm going to put in what I need to get out. But there's also a component of just knowing what you are not good at or trying to look out for spaces where you just might not have like necessarily the skill set to know when to shine. I remember 
Yeah. That when I first started at Willowtree, one of the first big projects I was on, I was getting ready to present it. And somebody quietly just sort of like looked at my deck and the deck for it was probably not as polished as it needed to be for a big financial services brand. And I remember a very kind strategist in this business just quietly like helping me fix it very quickly before a big presentation. And I think about that a lot when I think about imposter syndrome, that it's like, how do you become more self-aware as a leader to know when that moment is where it's like, eh, there could be a better version of this, like going up and out to the world. I'm curious to that point about how your leadership style has changed. What do you think have been some of the biggest changes or biggest adjustments to how you lead as you've gotten more experience and had some of those same moments where you're like, ooh, that was a thing where somebody saved my ass. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to like InterClick, which just to put it in context, our run was from like 2005 or so to like 2011. The stuff I could say and the shit I could get away with back then, like, <laughs> wouldn't, like wouldn't fly today. The other thing, too, is that at InterClick, we were never really tested. Like every quarter was record growth. And when we were public, we hit and beat Wall Street expectations 17 straight quarters. Like we had an incredible trajectory that led me to think I was like a halfway decent entrepreneur coming out of the experience. And it was within like a year or so of starting M Particle where I thought it was going to take us like a year, most likely maybe a year and a half to get into market and start seeing success, only to realize that it was going to take us closer to like 20 to 24 months that I realized like, oh, this is going to be a totally different type of experience. And so I think even just within the M Particle journey, my leadership style has evolved a ton. I think I went into it way overconfident, a very, very sophomoric, if you will. And I think over the course of time, really through like a number of like ups and downs through building this business, I feel like I've gotten better and become more mature as a leader. So I think I would, in the earlier days, I would have like really strong views and I would just like impose my will on, on the organization. And, and maybe there, there's a time where like that is okay, especially like in the, in the very early days. But like, as you start to build the company, you also have to, you have to realize like the interpersonal dynamics are just as important as like the thing that you're trying to accomplish. And I think that for me too, because we weren't necessarily like battle tested coming into M particle where like we didn't see like the peaks and the valleys at interclick making it through like the first couple of valleys also gave me the confidence that like we would be able to navigate really through anything. We went through a period of time in 2019 where the market dynamics within the CDP space started to change. There were some product gaps that we needed to address. Our go-to-market was suboptimal. It was kind of based on it was based on the things that got us to that point, but has started to no longer service all that well. And you know, so we had to do like a restructure of the go-to-market team, including like a small round of layoffs. And that was like the first time I had ever gone through that in my career. And 
on one hand, I was like, holy crap, like, I don't, I actually don't know how we're going to get through this. But diving into the business, it became clear what we needed to do. It was just about like doing the work and staying close to the details. And we figured it out. And, and not only did we figure it out, we actually like that very next quarter, we had our best quarter ever. So we went from like, really being knee deep in it to like, starting to feel good again. And it was like somewhere along the way, I remember walking home from the office to my apartment, where it was just like, we hadn't necessarily started to see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. But we knew that like, we had some smart people around the table. We didn't have to like anchor ourselves to this like, false narrative that we were telling ourselves up until that point. And there was just sense of calm, sense of freedom that like the only thing that we needed to do was focus on the stuff that really mattered. And that was like, that was really liberating. Well, that's awesome. Th- thanks for sharing. And as you, as you start to talk about the, the CDP landscape, I was going to have a shift a little bit. And we've been a couple weeks ago, we had an executive on from um, Anheuser-Busch, ABI, and we've been talking about CDPs a lot lately. And the space is so crowded. I've, I've said it a couple of times, like I almost feel for a, a marketing decision maker in the <laughs> landscape because everybody's saying they are a CDP. They're saying they have this product. And I was just curious from your view, how would you describe or define a CDP? And how would you outline where Imparticle fits in that, that crowded space? Yeah. So I think this is something that has definitely evolved a bunch over time. And I fully agree. Like there's lots of different types of CDPs. It's a, it's a fairly heterogeneous space. It's confusing to many, especially folks that are kind of like, they're trying to make these types of, of decisions because to your point, like you were talking to a, a marketer from Anheuser-Busch, right? But it's also not always the marketer, as you well know, who makes the quote unquote like CDP buying decision, right? Sometimes it's, the chief digital officer or somebody yeah. like in their part of the org. Um, sometimes it's somebody within like the product organization. In some cases it could be an engineering manager. Let's just kind of strip out all of the buzzwordiness, the acronyms, like, and think about like, well, what are the jobs to be done? What are the three or like, what are the use cases? And, and we see like three, maybe four use cases that the CDP the data layer can solve for. First is just streamlining and regulating all of your like event streams. So just like providing that pipeline, that customer data infrastructure to accelerate the needs of the business and provide that like agility layer. So that's the first thing. The second one is around creating that customer 360, right? So Unifying data from a bunch of disparate touch points and sources and systems and creating that unified view of the customer in order to help kind of transform the business, right? And I think in when the primary use case is around like creating that customer 360, it does map to like a transformation initiative because I think inherently what people are saying is like, the CX aspirations that the organization has probably exceed the capabilities of like their existing stack and set of tools. But I I think of that as like kind of this moment in time 
And then there's like the personalization slash targeting aspect of it. And I think like what's interesting about like those three different use cases is that like they're not necessarily linear, they're cyclical, right? So you may start with the pipeline and by creating a streamlined and unified pipeline, you can actually get to the customer 360, right? Because all of that information is now flowing through the pipeline and you're creating a copy of the of that record. In some cases, though, the, the, the team may not want to start with the pipeline. They may have pipelines already established. They're probably like more generalized in nature, but they may want to splice certain event streams off of that pipeline. And so maybe they want to just create that customer 360. In some cases, maybe they already have that customer 360. Maybe all the data has been dumped into a data warehouse and maybe like the, the 360 isn't like hasn't come into focus yet but all of the components are there. And then it's really just about like being able to assimilate all of that data, all that information, and being able to build custom audiences, um, customer journey sequences, define goals, and let the kind of platform do this like kind of goal-seeking thing with, with the audience creation. And what we tend to find is like you may start at any one of those three points, but you can go around the loop a few different times. And what's interesting is I think one of the things that does separate companies like us and and even Segment is like we were both built on real-time Rails. So streaming architecture end-to-end at the core from day one. And that's very different than a lot of CDPs who are batch-based. They may have like a certain component of their system which does like maybe some like real-time computation but the data gets loaded in like once a day or it gets updated like once a week. And the more times you go around that cycle that I was talking about, the more important that real time actually becomes, right? The more value that ends up accruing. And so like, I tend to not get bought into the hype cycle around like, who owns the CDP or how do you define it? It's like, what are we here to do? What problems are we here to solve? Yeah, I think that's a great point. One of the easiest use cases when people are trying to understand like, what is a CDP and what does it do? I usually say like, okay, just think about a grocery store. If you're a grocery store and somebody comes and they buy your products every week, the same products, they're going to log into your app and they're going to expect that you know that about them. But how do you make sure that you can do that? First of all, you need to know this person's name. You need to know their location, where they shop at a basic level. You need to know their email address, their phone number, all these things. And that's like kind of traditional CRM stuff. But then if you really want to know what products have they looked at, and they might look at thousands, hundreds, tens, but very many, and which have they purchased and which did they purchase through your app versus through the store? Think about just how many sources and different types of data have to be combined just to create that single view of the customer. So then in your app, you can deploy content modules and assets that respond to the potential thousands of choices about which products they've looked at. You can make sure that that grocery store experience is personalized across email, across app, across web. And people tend to really like understand that example. They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I want my grocery store app to be personalized with the items that I care about and I want to shop. But I, I think you are right that even like personalization becomes kind of this buzzword and it becomes hard to put sort of ROI behind it or to justify, even though we know it's critical, but it's also very hard to do. What do you think is still making it so hard for brands to be personalized? Like this is fundamentally what a CDP solves. 
But even to your point around the difference between real time and batch, like I always forget that as a selling point that, oh, yeah, like not everybody is even real time right now. Like, mm-hmm. anyway, I'm kind of ranting now. But why, why do you think personalization is so hard to accomplish even today? Yeah, I think it starts with having a data strategy. And, and I don't think that a lot of organizations are mature enough in their data practice to have built and executed a data strategy. And like just having a data team doesn't mean you have a data strategy, right? We actually see a lot of the times where like we talk to companies and you know, we're talking to a handful now and it's like we're being brought in because like their data teams went off the rails for the past like 18 months investing in a whole bunch of shit that like didn't actually add any type of economic value, right? And there is this kind of like incongruence between like data teams and business teams, which makes it kind of painful. Data teams don't typically understand or appreciate all of the nuances with respect to marketing and a lot of the idiosyncratic nature of customer data. And conversely, though, I would say like marketers don't always necessarily understand all of the complexity associated with data infrastructure and the data stack as a whole. So I think that like personalization has to be in service of some sort of goal, right? If personalization ends up being like the tactic, I would say let's kind of move one level up and say like what what are you trying to solve for? You're probably trying to solve for growth and the old way of driving growth which was like throwing a ton of money at like cheap customer acquisition like that's gone away. So reasonably, I think that most companies are, what they're really trying to do is like improve customer lifetime value. And personalization is the tactic to get there. Now, what comes after that are like the set of features that allow you to execute the tactic properly or most optimally. A lot of tools haven't, they haven't contemplated like the end-to-end workflow around how to actually do that because it starts... It's like the part of the iceberg that you can't see. It's like the part that's beneath the the surface. It's like the data quality protections, data validation, maintaining security and reliability and scalability, like the not so sexy stuff. But like without those things, everything else becomes a bit of a bandaid or really just like a semi-interesting story that doesn't get executed properly. And that's why like I go back to that, go back to that cycle you can maybe skip some steps to start. You can start with like the personalization thing. But if you really want to do it right, what you really need to go back to is like the pipeline piece. And you need to start thinking about better instrumentation and better protection over your event streams and your customer data so that you can get to a high fidelity customer 360 so that that is the foundation of personalization, right? And it's all interconnected. But I think the way that a lot of vendors have gone to market over the course of the past few years, they just focus on like the beautiful dashboards and they focus on like the nice reports and the pretty colors and all that kind of stuff. And that's like cool and interesting, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. Yeah. As we're having conversations a lot right now with customers that have decided that they're ready to take the leap. Some of these customers are maybe not the leaders in digital innovation. You know, they're, uh, they've kind of, they're following the path of others in their industry and saying, okay, well, mm. 
you know, X, Y, and Z company that we compete with or aspire to be like, they have implemented a CDP and they've delivered on these strategies. So we're ready to do that as well. <laughs> and we see this a lot. Um, and so it's great. Okay. Um, and, and often they're not wrong. Like it's the, the appropriate strategy for them to take. But inevitably, they become very, very focused on ROI, particularly the, the speed to ROI. Um, like, okay, we're going to follow this proven path that the leaders in, in our vertical have followed. But when can we expect a return on this CDP implementation? And, and those are challenging conversations. I have to think these are conversations that you're involved in all the time or that you face and, and would just be curious to, to hear you uh, talk a little bit about how you think brands should be having this conversation, thinking about this and ultimately measuring the ROI on, on this investment. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up where like people are chasing this like speed to ROI. But what we see is like you go the easy route to start and there's always like all debt becomes due. So like easier to start, much more expensive to continue there's no replacement for having to do the underlying heavy lifting, like the blocking and tackling around formulating a data strategy, making sure that that strategy aligns to your business outcomes, which have a well-defined set of tactics and underlying set of capabilities that are required. Look, I think like if we step back for a sec, I think the shift to the cloud brought about changes in the software distribution model, which spurred on like an ecosystem of applications, native cloud-based applications slash point solutions. And along the way, I think like one of the natural laws of technology, you have this kind of like endless debate around like bundling and unbundling. Is it like a centralized solution or is it like a set of decentralized point solutions? We've definitely seen this in marketing tech over the course of the past 10 years, right? Sure. I think that the cost of unbundling is that while getting started may be easier, the cost to continue is exponentially higher. And it's, and it's higher because you have a lot more complexity in the maintenance and operationalizing these systems, right? Now, alternatively, like the product and um, commercial advantages of a kind of tightly bundled solution are really tough to ignore, but nobody wants like the monolith, right? right. Like the giant marketing cloud that promises everything and you know, delivers nothing. I'm not going to name any names here. <laughs> so I think like what's most important is to figure out like what's better for customers and, and what's the right balance effectively. And I think, given the fact that there are a set of capabilities and data specs that are repeated across the entire customer data stack from like your marketing tools to your analytics tools and everything in between, there's an opportunity and arguably a critical need to abstract those capabilities into a, like a effectively like a common data layer. At the core of it, what you have is like data extraction, natively and dynamically joined at like the customer profile. That ends up helping fuel more powerful applications, such as like real-time audience targeting and like the dynamic customer journey sequences and 
you can effectively like remove the boundaries of like channel specific or even like partner specific limitations, right? There are like three core benefits when you start implementing that common data layer. And it's some of the stuff that I've already mentioned, but I'll mention it again. It's like you move faster and, and cheaper, right? You instantiate that layer of, of agility. You improve ROI. And that speaks to the point around like actually making the tools that are within the stack better because the data quality is mm-hmm. better because yeah. the data sets are, are more complete. And then you can like improve trust because you create a point of regulation. The same system that serves as an access point to the ecosystem effectively serves as the choke point. So you can increase transparency and control and governance, right? So you get to play offense, Mm -hmm. you get to play a little bit of defense. And without that, it's a really high cost to maintain and to scale. Michael, you were recently in some relatively spicy debate across the professional channels of LinkedIn, primarily, on the question of our customer data platforms dead. And I think what this is really responding to is there's just constant shifts in the technology landscape. When you think about data warehouses, reverse ETL, how all of these different platforms play together. But there's always some voices that say customer data platforms aren't a lasting piece of technology. Um, They're dying out. They're being replaced with other things. How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I was the one that said DMPs were dead like five years ago. <laughs> so they're just like, they're stealing my tactics, which like, you know, what do they say? Like imitation is the sincerest form of, of flattery. So I thank them for that. And like, I've invested in a couple of those companies and I'm a fan of a lot of the stuff that they're doing. I think it's been a fun and interesting debate. And some of those guys will kind of like keep republishing the same post with just like a different title or, or line. And it's like, all right, we've kind of run this into the ground. My sense is like CDPs are not dead. It's not this like, they're not this like transitory solution that helped kind of bridge the gap. I do think that there is an important platform shift where the data warehouse is becoming an important part of every organization. I think where we differ from like some of the kids building reverse ETL companies is one on our focus in terms of solving customer problems first, rather than just like doing a bunch of hand wavy shit around like features and functionality. And then secondly, the data warehouse is an important source, a important source, not the only source, right? And I think that that's like the fundamental difference in what we're saying. They have this very dogmatic view where it's like, if you're not part of the data warehouse ecosystem, you should die. And I think that that's like super extreme. I think that there's room enough for both systems, especially given the fact that like, if everything goes through an ETL process into the data warehouse and then has to get reverse ETL'd out, there's a number of use cases which map to your business goals, which you just can't solve for that you need real-time pipes like MParticle to help you solve effectively, right? So I think it's like, it's all marketing. It's all fun. Uh, and I wouldn't take any of it serious. Yeah, I also agree with that. Because until databases figure out how to even structure data in a way that becomes usable and uniform, like that becomes one of the biggest problems in a database. When data ends up in a database because it's coming from M particle and it's already structured and cleansed in a way that's 
replicable. Yes. That's a pretty critical component of being able to even use your database in the first place. It's so eerily like similar to like the web three. Yeah. Yeah. Like talk to me about what is this solution uniquely positioned to do above and beyond the value that you get out of like the existing system, the existing setup. And there's no answers. It's just like a bunch of theoretical arguments and a bunch of hand wavy stuff around features and functionality, all of which already exist in the CDP ecosystem, right? And so what is the one differentiator? There really isn't any, especially like we already announced, like we're rolling out reverse ETL. That's inevitable. That's, you know, a couple months out kind of thing, right? Like just after the new year. At that point, why would anybody go with just a reverse ETL company when you can get all the same things from a CDP like MParticle plus the eight years of feature development that we have on top of that, plus the couple of companies that we've acquired, right? Like it makes, the argument makes no sense to me. Well, Michael, before we let you go back to your day and get back to work, have a a couple fun questions for you. Earlier, you mentioned reading and how, uh, especially over the last couple of years, you've, uh, I think you said a book a week, which, man, uh, I need to, I need to get to work (laughs) to match that. And I was at an event of yours um, where I think as part of a gift package, the book, I think it was Quit. Is that the the name of the book? And maybe that's the book I was going to tee up to maybe provide a, a recommendation for a great book that you've read recently that you think others could benefit from? Yeah, absolutely. So quit by Annie Duke, who's just an incredible person and somebody I'm so fortunate to get to work with on a, on a consistent basis is it's awesome. I think like all of her books, um, from thinking in bets to how to decide to, to quit are like, or must reads. I think it really depends on like all what's going to resonate with you. Like I'm going back through, some of Jeffrey Moore's classics, um, like Crossing the Chasm and Into the Tornado and Dealing with Darwin right now, just based on some of the things that I'm thinking about. But there's so many, right? Like from Start With Why is one that I love and usually recommend to folks. I mean, it, it, I don't know. It all depends. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Tough one. Those are good recommendations. And then my favorite question, I'm always really focused on what makes people truly loyal to a brand. So we invite all our guests to talk positive trash about a brand that you love and tell us why you are so loyal to them. I mean, ultimately, I think it's about like value delivered, right? I'm trying to think about like the brands that I'm loyal to and the brands that like have really captivated my attention over the course of the past few years. And like brands aren't built on the media plan anymore, right? Like they're built on customer experience. And so I think things like Starbucks, for example, like the magic of being able to like wake up, place your order in, walk the dog, like pick up your coffee along the way. Like just the convenience factor from that standpoint, I think is incredible yeah, you know, I, I live in New York, so like I'm I'm constantly ordering food off of like the food delivery apps, like Uber Eats or Postmates or Caviar, and just like the fact that you can like press a couple buttons and food shows up in, in 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind of magical. So yeah, I, I would say that like it's it's all about those magic moments. Totally. 
Yeah, I can't agree more that now, like all the marketing in the world doesn't replace a good or a bad brand experience and how quickly people will shift. Well, Michael, thank you for being here. It has been great to have a conversation with you. I know this will be super informative to our listeners, especially those that are a little more seeped in this intersection between product marketing, engineering, product tech. Like there's just so much sitting at that Venn diagram intersection today. Um, So thank you for being with us. Thank you to our listeners as well. We will see you next week on Room for Growth. Thank you.